Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Crew Shaken, a Warhammer 40,000 tabletop wargaming podcast, recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United States. I'm your host, Tim. Thank you for joining me again in the virtual studio via the wonders of Skype. I have Carlo and Lovell. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Great to be back. Good, good to be here. So we were just catching up before we hit the red button. There's a lot to talk about tonight. This is a busy time of year in our local Warhammer and miniature tabletop wargaming community, so there's a lot going on, a lot to talk about. Let's uh, let's start off the first section, as we always do, with hobby news and progress. What we've been up to in the hobby. Is it building? Is it painting? Is it buying? Is it playing? Can we start with Carlo? Carlo, what's new? Um, you know, uh, since we started that league, uh, I had to switch gears from going from Space Wolves to back to the Eldar stuff. So in the Unari, yeah. So I'm looking into uh, kind of having to make a decision on. I have, I have some Cabalite warriors that you know I bought a long time ago in the box, and um, I had painted them red for that Shadow War campaign we were doing because I was proxying them as Eldar, right? And then. Uh, I went to Top Deck a couple months ago and picked up those uh, that Dark Eldar um, army that looks like they're wearing a Canadian tuxedo. You know, they're it's the blue with like the white dry brush. So I'm trying to pick between the two before I paint anything up, uh, whether or not I want to keep that paint scheme that I started with, or kind of like I like the Canadian tuxedo a lot. You know, because I'm a big fan of denim. So you know, uh, we'll see what we roll with there. But uh, right now, I mean, I haven't been doing much painting over the last couple of weeks, but I'm looking to get back into it this week for kill, uh, get some stuff ready for Killicans on Saturday. Awesome. Can you fill our audience in about the uh, league that we're doing in our local, for those outside of our local uh, community? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I think the league is called the Hum of the Radix, right? Radix? Yep, Radix. Uh, Radix, right. <laughs> and we've got a, a couple of great guys that uh, organized it uh, Alex uh, Sasha Alex and then um, Ian and you know Ian's a great uh, storyteller and Alex has put together a lot of roles and they've come together and created this really fantastic league uh, that uh, a lot of people have been participating in I think we've got around almost what 20 people 25 people or something like that yeah it's a big group so yeah, it's a huge group, and you know it's kind. Of, it's very cool. They've got it around. Uh, I th- it looks like they've built some kind of map using hexographer. Yep. And uh, each hex is numbered, and each numbered hex offers certain bonuses if you're able to capture it. Um, if you don't control a hex, you do something. Uh, you make planet fall to attack a hex, and you fight. You know who whoever would own that hex or be adjacent to it. So, and we play our games biweekly which is really nice because a lot of us uh, have kind of strict work schedules and stuff like that, so it's not always easy to get a game in. But with the biweekly schedule, I think it's been it's been a great way to uh, get play in with people you wouldn't normally get to play against. And, hey, Carl, uh, can I jump in here? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I did, you know, your description of the league and, and everything is, is right on point. But one of the elements about the league that makes it more interesting is we're segmented into teams. Um, there is the Imperial team, there is the Chaos team, and then there is the Xenos team. And that segmentation, which occurs a lot in the narrative, um, the narrative tournaments that we have, that makes people feel like they're not alone. So even if you're losing all of your games, like me, 
And me. And me. You still feel like your team has a chance and you're still collaborating with your teams. There's a Facebook group. Uh, I snuck into one group because I switched sides. You did. And you did. You it did. Really, it really, it really generates um, a greater sense of community throughout the league. That's one of the things I like the most is the fact that we're divided up three ways. So it's three groups kind of vying for control of the planet's surface, and you know the way they're releasing sort of the mission pack every week, which is an update of the team status, you know, the team uh, standings, the pairings for the week, and what's happening in the narrative on the planet's surface, I think, is awesome. Uh, unfortunately, in my second game, the I was making planet fall. I was the attacker. The defender really was in a very good position to continue to defend this certain part of kind of a, like a manufacturing hex that I was going after. Um, Tim, so, who, Tim, who'd you play? I played Justin. And what did he play? He had his death guard. No, um, he didn't have Mortarian, but he had some real mean uh, Terminators and those plague burst cannons, those like Vindicators with LAS guns on the sides of them, the new ones. Okay. Yeah, those look awesome. What models. did you play? I played Iron Hands. It was 1750, um, and it was it didn't go well. Justin could not have rolled the dice any better. If something, Let me ju- it, 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 he was rolling perfectly. He was rolling mathematically perfectly, and I'll, I'll talk more about it later. Let me just say this: I played Adam. He had the Death Guard as well against my Necrons, and he tabled me. He absolutely tabled me. You talk about Justin's rolling. Every possible role that I could whiff, I did. But it was still fun. I, I did the same thing. I think the Death Guard are—they're super resilient. They have a lot of tricks. If you have—if they have the right characters on the table, like Typhus and that bubble of doom that forms around him, he's got seven inches of plus one strength and plus one toughness. I think with a certain relic, he—he he was super powerful and super hard to get off the table. And I'll—I'll just—I'll continue the story just for a second. Um, turn one. I was the attacker. I got to go first. I had a, a storm raven and a land raider with the grav centurions in it. Moved everything. It was dawn of war deployment. Moved everything across the table. You know, had some good shooting. Took out a bunch of uh, plague bearers and whatnot. Got rid of a couple of a uh, couple of chaos uh, space marines and a couple of the death guard marines rather. And his turn one. Those plague burst cannons. I think it's called a plague burst cannon. Whatever it is, it's the vindicator thing. Um, I think it's three D. It's either three D six shots or three D three shots or whatever. He had every possible hit. Every possible hit. He sent one at the storm raven. Took it down in one turn. Every single wound. Toughness eight. Took it down. Crashed and burned. Killed a bunch of my guys that were forced to jump out on the ground along with a bunch of his guys, okay? Second half of his turn one, the other Plague Burst cannon thing that he had, shooting at the Land Raider, again, rolled mathematically perfectly, blew up the Land Raider, again did a bunch of mortal wounds to everything around the Land Raider. It was just total carnage turn one. So I I gave up after turn two because there was no possible way for me to come back points-wise after he had, like... I think he had like 13 points to my four or something after turn two. So the game was over at that point. Okay, was he using Carl those uh, those shady, uh, what are they called, the Death Guard dice with the bubbles on them? No. Nah. <laughs> I'm joking around. I'm joking around. That's good. <laughs> nah, I think, you know, sometimes it just happens like that, you know. And um, 
It is what it is. Yeah, it just didn't go my way. Yeah, we still had a good time. Justin's a cool guy and a good gamer, and he's been doing it for a while, so we, we had a good time. Lavelle, how about you? What's what's up in the hobby for you? Oh, listen, I, I'm 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 still suffering from a lack of attention span. Hmm. I have not worked begun working on my Talons of the Emperor set yet, but that's on my 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 list. I have completed all of my guard, so I I have about it. Um, don't judge me. I have about 9,000 points of guard. And so my guard is all ready to play. So I was all ready for my guard. I got a little beat up and I switched to Necrons. And so now I have a couple of Necron pieces that I have one layer of paint on that I need to continue to flesh out. But right now, a lot of my focus is on on, um, fleshing out the rest of my Necron pieces. um, Because... I haven't heard any rumors or anything, but I'm hopeful of a new codex for Necrons. It's, it's got to be awesome. It's got to be soon. It's got to be soon. Yes. So right now, my, my guard is complete. Um, my um, my All I need to do is work on my Necron. And I have, I have um, probably 16,000 points of Necrons. But what my biggest problem is a lot of the big heavy stuff that I want to play with, I haven't gotten down to painting yet. Um, you know, naturally my monolith and I have a couple of Forge World pieces that need to be um, uh, spot painted and everything. But I'm really working on I'm trying to focus on my Necron. Plus, I'm going to start working on some Necron terrain. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But I I, I want to build a Necron map because I my heart is really with the Necron race. And I, I really like their army, the way they play. Yeah. And I really like to build my own board. Every couple of months we'll have a conversation and you'll be really excited about diving into a new army. And they're all armies that you own or own pieces of, but that the but that attention, you're, you said you have a lack of attention, that, that attention span shifts between stuff. I look forward to you finishing the Towns of, Towns of the Emperor stuff and really diving into yeah, that. You know, you know what it is? I really like, you know, I've been collecting over the years. Um, like Mike, Mike is in our group. Mike has a huge... Um, uh, Ultramarines collection and he never stopped and he never deviated. Even when I got out of playing 40k briefly or whatever period of time, I never gave up the army. And, and when I see a piece and I go, oh, that's an awesome piece. Let me get that. What can I build around that? And then it kind of builds around. And I, I go piece by piece. You know, I don't I don't have a lot of <laughs> I don't have a, a lot of things I spend money on. So I just kind of creep and grow my collection of games and Right now, 40K has a lot of depth, yeah. and I really, really enjoy where it is. I've also been suffering from a little bit of hobby ADD recently in that I haven't been painting any of my 40K stuff, but on my hobby table right now I have an, the Infinity Army still sitting there. I have two factions of Bushido sitting there. I have a bunch of Dark Age stuff sitting there. And I have I wound up picking up the core set for Ethereum Lavelle, that game that you had bought at Nova that we were all excited about. I got the core box a couple of weeks ago, too. So I started painting those two armies as well. So I have all of these cat food, you know, cardboard, like, trays, you know, that cat food cans come in. And I have, I think it's I think it's a total of, like, seven ten-man armies sitting on my hobby table ready to get worked on. So it's been a, it's been a challenge to focus on one because I'm really stoked about all of them. And I'm really excited about playing all those different games. And my 40K stuff, I feel like, is in pretty good shape because of that big hustle to get ready for Nova last month. So I feel like I'm in pretty good shape there, at least to finish out the rest of this year, I think. There's 2,000-some-odd points there that looks you know, looks pretty good, so I don't need to really 
fuss with that too much more. But these little skirmish, little skirmish, you know, style games are really, really grabbing my attention. Really grabbing my attention. You know, I only mentioned the 40k stuff. I'm not going to go into the other stuff I have, but I want to say something. Going back to my Necron, my Necron army really at three different stages. I have this whole set of Necrons that I usually play with that are back like the third, second, third edition metal pieces that I went through a lot of trouble collecting the entire army. I also, even though people don't, that you hardly ever get to see it. The current model range, I have an army in that. And then I have that army of old AT-43. I think, no, yeah, it was called AT-43. Those army, that those pieces that I adapted for my Forge World Maynard dynasty. Mm. Um and, you know, I got to say, I, I, I got some retooling to do on a couple of pieces to make the, uh, them table ready. I got a lot of work to do, but it's a labor of love. Carlo, there is a painting competition associated with the Radix campaign that uh, all of us are involved in. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, I feel kind of bad about this because I'm one of the people that voted for it. And then didn't participate. <laughs> so you said you wanted to do it, but are not doing it. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I, I got, you know, um, I've been pretty busy at, you know, it's a lame excuse, but pretty busy at work lately. And then uh, a few things going on on the side. Um, and for the limit of 400 points that you need to hit is a little bit too aggressive for me. It's a lot. Um, yeah, and I, I tried uh, my... The first week I was actually working on those um, Gunslinger Wolfguard that I was talking about. Oh, yeah. But then when I switched, switched over to Yanari to balance out the league a bit, because uh, we were sh- heavy on Imperial and short on Xenos, um, at, at that point, um, you know, I'm still trying to figure out what paint scheme I want to do for the Xenos guys. So I'm not, I'm not at a, a point where I want to affirm my decision over here on what to paint them. So. It, no love for that uh, painting um, challenge right now. So, but, so, so, so you, you've bowed yeah. out of the 400-point-a-week uh, requirement? Yeah. Cool. It's, I'm still doing some things slowly, but yeah. you know, nothing to write home about. So also in my hobby progress, I'll talk about some purchases, which have kind of got me excited. In addition to that Ethereum board game, I took delivery of Kingdom Death from the most recent Kickstarter, which is pretty cool. Um, I just opened the box to look inside of it. It's, that's a a whole other painting project that I haven't even started to think about yet. But even just having the box sitting on the shelf feels good because it's a badass box of uh, some good miniature gaming goodness in there. Um, I also picked up Shadespire yesterday, which is kind of this miniature dice card combination game. I'm still getting my mind around how it works exactly. But it appeals to me because the number of it's a small number of models... These are Age of Sigmar, you know, Warhammer Fantasy models that I don't own and I think are cool, but, you know, would not have an, I'm not going to build a huge AOS army anytime soon, so it's nice to be able to paint something and that's modeled in a very different style. So I'm looking forward to painting the, the two armies that come in the box, and I'm also super stoked about these Iron Jaws orcs, uh, this little warband that comes out next week. The game is interesting. It's a mix of, uh, you know, you, it's tile placement, so you get to kind of configure the board a little bit differently, um, like deployment in 40K. Um, it has a deck building component where you can kind of 
you you create the the abilities and powers that your warband can take to the battlefield by building a deck of cards a certain way. And it has these cool custom dice that give you different things you can do each activation. So in theory, it should be like very fast to play. It should be it should encourage you know some really good strategic thinking. And uh, it's in a cool setting. This this city of Shadespire that was uh, sort of destroyed by the uh, I think the god of death uh, Nagash, that skeletal um, knight-looking figure that you sometimes see in the Warhammer fantasy stuff. So I'm I'm pretty excited about Shadespire. I look forward to putting that together and trying out some games in that setting. It's just cool to have a very different setting to kind of dabble with, you know, just just to mix it up a little bit. It's interesting to paint like small, like you said, when you get into those the small um, army games where you don't have to paint like a million things. It's nice because you can spend a little bit more time on it, and it's fun. You get to play with the four different factions uh, that come with it. I think what, what do you know what comes in that box? I think orcs and in the in the starter box it is corn uh, berserker looking guys and uh, stormcast eternals. So you get four of the uh, the berserker dudes and you get three eternals. One of which is a female model that's really cool looking. Um, in the iron jaws box that comes out this week, you get four iron jaws orcs, and then there's a skeleton army box that comes out and it looks like you get quite a few of those little skeleton guys. And each of those additional armies comes with their own decks of cards and the decks that you get with those other armies you can use with other armies. So not all the cards are unique to one particular force. So it is to your advantage to buy all the models so you get all the cards to mix into your own deck, whichever faction you choose to really kind of stick with and, and, and move forward with, you know. Right on. It seems Wait, it seems really what, cool. What's it play like? So it's you have it's four, it's three turns. It's four activations per turn, and you can charge. You can move. You can choose to go on guard, which is kind of like an Overwatch kind of a thing. Um, every every model has a little stat card. If certain things happen to that model, you flip the stat card over, and it goes into like this Super Saiyan like Overdrive kind of mode thing. And it, it's, it, it looks, from the from the playthroughs that I've seen online, it can get really fast. Like, a lot of back-and-forth action can happen. There can be a lot of dice rolling, down cards to buff up characters. You're moving things across the board and attacking really quickly. It's tight, so it's it's two, maybe they're 12 by 18 rectangles, maybe. Um, and it's just two of them, so you're you're really in your opponent's face right away, which is fun. And there are objective tokens all over the board. So in your hand, hidden from your opponent is what you're actually trying to accomplish. It's like hidden objectives in 40k. Um, so what you're up to is a mystery until you score them at the end of each turn, and there's three turns to the game. Hmm. Have you actually played the game yet? I have not. No, I just got it yesterday. Just opened it up and started okay. looking at the stuff yesterday. I punched out all the cardboard bits. Um, tonight, after our recording session is done, I am going to sit down. And they're the push-fit models, these new fangled uh, Games Workshop push-fit models. So I'm going to put them together with some glue and maybe prime them tonight just to get something out to, to fool around with. But I'm into okay. it. You know, I've been having trouble carving out. You know, the League is a great motivator to play a bigger pointed game of 40K, but I've been having trouble getting over to the store to play a big game regularly since Nova, really. Um, so I think if I can get a couple of people stoked about playing this kind of game or, you know, one of the other card games that uh, Carlo and I have been messing with, um, it would be nice to be able to get a couple of games in in two hours 
as opposed to blocking out four hours and you know it's it's it's, it's you know same thing. It's time is time is precious, and especially around the holidays, there seems to be fewer and less and less of it. So I think a smaller pointed a smaller scoped game like this will be right up my alley for the next uh, couple of months of of interest. Lavelle, before the call, we were talking about the uh, the the way that codexes are coming out. You said something interesting that I really like the sound of. You're buying all the books. I've never ever done that before ever. And in this edition, I bought every codex that's come out. And I started it. I bought, I'm not a Space Marines player, but I, the Space Marines came out. And I said, let me see what's going on. And I read it. It was a good read. I liked the layout. And I like to see each army now has more depth when it gets a codex than just the stat lines. I like to see the relics. I like to see all of those things. And I, I, it was such a good read, and I enjoyed it. When the next one came out, which might have been um, the Death Guard, or, or the, I can't remember what it was, but I said, ooh, got to have that one. Let's see what this is. And then I just kept following that train. Good. Now, it wasn't until they got to Imperial Guard that we got to a codex that impacted me. But it's been – I find that both the pace and the structure of the codex – that are coming out is really, really good for the entire gaming environment. Um, I have not, you know, a lot of people, when you get it, back in the day, when you got a new codex, you were winning. And then it would take everybody else months to get their new codex and even equalize the playing field. Um, even though my Necrons don't have a new codex, I don't feel I'm disadvantaged. Because there, there was a lot of good stuff in those original indices, yeah. I agree. And it was a really a nice level playing field. I do envy, like, when a codex comes out, their stratagems and their relics. But using the stratagems and using the relics the way it is now, it's not. it doesn't cover the entire game so much. Right. And it's it's been really, really good. I have to say the, the, the model that um, Games Workshop has been using with the with the, the entire game, I think, has changed the environment. If I could jump subjects a little bit, um, the deck. So each time they do a codex, they do they publish a little deck for that. Right. If that's your army and that's your codex, I recommend to get that deck. I noticed I played a game with Ian, and we were both uh, Imperial Guard. And he had the deck, and it streamlined his play so much better. How so? I, because he already he knew what um, what stratagems he was going to be using, so he pulled those cards out, and so he didn't have to flip through the book. He could employ that stratagem. He knew exactly. At one point in time, on the other side, he had his stratagem down with his command points on top of him, and I was like, "Well, what is this coming?" He's, my way? he's ready to go. He's ready to go. Yeah. Right. It, it was really really good um, and streamlined and play. After I saw him playing with his deck, I said, "I got I got to get one." I got to get one, and I actually had to um, order one because they were all sold out, And which I can understand. Back in the day when they put accessories out like that, they weren't necessarily vital or they didn't necessarily have a big impact on the game. But they do now. I do. I strongly recommend the decks, strongly. Now, if you, are, if, if you pick up the Adeptus Mechanicus book but you're not an Adeptus Mechanicus player, you probably – I would not recommend the deck. But if that's your army and you're going to play it, the deck really does do a lot for streamlining play um, and helping you get organized. 
Maybe this wasn't planned by Games Workshop, but I think this is part of what happened, and I think this is part of what defined how they're releasing these codexes, right? When they started releasing the Fall of Cadia books at the end of 7th edition, it was like one book every month or every six weeks, right? And I think it was a $50 book new, maybe $40. But it was like you were buying... It, it took me a while to read each of those books, and I enjoyed them. You know, I enjoyed reading the story. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed reading they were great. the yeah, they were awesome. I enjoyed reading the campaigns in the back, the different ways to play. I enjoyed every page of those books. I really did, and I, I thought they did a dynamite job. So then, when Eighth Edition came out, I found myself kind of looking at these at the new codexes in the same way, for this for the same price of a couple of magazines, essentially, like magazines about anything, whatever you know. Um, for the same price as a couple of magazines would cost, I'm getting, you know, a bunch of evenings worth of reading out of each of those books, whether or not I play the army. So I am excited to get the Death Guard Codex because I've been smashed by the Death Guard two weeks in a row in the <laughs> league. So I'm really looking forward to find out what the heck is going on in that book. And the um, the Astra Militarum um, book sounds really cool. And I don't, you know, there's a lot of stories in there, a lot of good narrative in there. So I want to read that. And especially when we get some more of the Xenos books, I don't know much about the Tau. You know, I'd love to l- read more about the Tyranids, too, and especially if there's a new Orc Codex. You know, all that stuff. I'm pretty excited about that stuff. Hey, the Tyranids are supposedly coming out next. I'll, I'll pick the Tyranids up. I definitely need to get the Death Card because I'm getting beat by them. And I will start to get the cards, too. I do not yeah. have I do not have the Space Marine deck. I made like an Excel spreadsheet that I keep off to the side, like a printed little page that has all the stratagems on it. But I will I trust your good gaming judgment, so I will definitely try one of the decks out and see if it doesn't streamline play. If it's your army, get the deck. That's my advice. Get the deck. And so you know, uh, we've all been there where we're flipping back and forth to the book trying to get the right wording. What's that say? Mm-hmm. But when you mm-hmm. got the cards right there, it's really, really good. Anything you can do to make it smoother and more engaging with your opponent, especially if you can make any kind of rule lookup or any kind of stat lookup quicker, it's always a good thing. Hey, let me let me talk about something else a little bit because um, just this – maybe it was the weekend before last. I was in, a, in an infinity tournament, yeah. and it was four rounds. And I had to tap out at the end of the third round. And my son, Akil, has not yet played a full game of 8th edition, even though he's getting his his um, Eldar ready for a game and he's going through things. But li- listen, four games of 8th edition is so much more enjoyable than four games of anything else because of the streamlined play. Um, your opponent is taking their turns. That the four games of Infinity, you're you're on that table every minute of the game. Right. Your turn and their turn. Yeah, you're thoroughly the, engaged. Yeah. Right. But the whole play with um with um 40k, now you can get six turns in within two hours, hour and a half maybe, depending on your armies. And it's really not that I can't I don't want to say it's that not that heavy, but it really flows nicely. It really flows nicely. You don't get a lot of, of stuff that doesn't make sense, or you know, it's just a really, really good game. I can't say that enough. Forty K right now is a really fun game to play. You get the right guys that you're playing with. You get the right people you're playing with. Oh, uh, you're gonna have a ball, and that's what it's been like. One thing I noticed when I was playing Justin at the, uh, you know, we went to Red Caps to meet up for our league game. There were 
two guys, I can't remember their names, but they're always there playing Infinity. But they were there just watching, and they were there reading the 40K books, because now they're going to start playing in 40K. You know, it's a couple of things, reasons for it. Our community is very inclusive. We have many people that cross over different games. So not even including me, who plays just about everything, including checkers. Um, there are people who are in 40K and people who are in Infinity. And they see the same players across games. And they say, that's a great guy over there. He, you know, I played with him in this game. Let me give it a try. Plus, you know, Red Cats did something interesting. All of the old edition books, they put in a bin and they made them available for anybody who wanted to take them. And, and people started picking them up and reading them. And it generated some interest. One guy, uh, uh, Tom is his name. Tom is a great Infinity player. Tom said to me the other day, yeah, I just picked up some tile. Picked up a tile started set. Right. And, you know, the way that they're packaging the game now also makes a difference. You can pick up a starter set really, really easy. I wanted to say, you know, we almost always play point levels. I was at another gaming store near me in Phoenixville, and they almost always play just a different gaming group, great group of guys, um, Basement War Gamers. And they almost always play power level. And I was asking them about the difference, and they said, well, you know, it really makes for e- e- it makes it easier to build armies and to, to just get them on the board faster. And they, they, they didn't correct me. They said, you know, we play a lot of point levels, too. But for quick pickup games, we just do the power level. And I think that having those two options, power level, point levels, it makes it easier for a new player yeah. to get on board, get with the flow of the game, and then make adjustments. Also, Joe, one of the leaders in our uh, local gaming meta, he puts together a lot of events across a couple of different games. He has a new Kickstarter. Lavelle, you were telling me about it before we got on the line. This is his third, I think, Kickstarter. The first two were 3D printed Infinity accessories. Can you tell us about uh, Joe's new Kickstarter called Colony with a K? So before I talk about Joe's Kickstarter, let me say Joe has always been kind of a ground-up terrain builder. He's built a lot of the terrain that we have at the store. He has great terrain. When he got into 3D printing, he found the ability to expand his terrain capabilities. So, for example, you buy a new printer, you buy a new anything, and you pull out a great piece of styrofoam, and you look at it and say, man, this is pretty good. Now he had the ability, he said, to, to print out a door and attach that door to the styrofoam to really give it a lot of depth. And he was talking about being able to print out a couple of doors, a radar dish, and a, and a tank, like a, a gas tank, and attach that to the building, paint the building. All of a sudden, the building had more depth. What he did was he then took that to the next level, and he said, you know, this is great for me. It's got to be great for other people. So he, he's developed his own set of, uh, I think he said they're called STCs, the, their own set of schematics, where people could buy the schematics and print them out themselves. But then recognizing that people, everybody didn't have a 3D printer, he started bundling the packages up and selling them. And the packages are not that expensive. His Kickstarter includes, you know, a couple of sets of terrains that you would have to actually populate a board. You know, the way your board looks is really, really important and it adds depth to the game. And 
his Kickstarter gives you the ability to start getting pieces together to actually do that. And they're very, very inexpensive and they're great quality. Almost every tournament we have, we um, we play on it. I, I, I tease him because once him and I played a game on a board that he designed. And I was like, this is a little bit suspect right here. Until I won the game, then I realized everything was nice and fair. <laughs> yeah, right. I won. It must be must be even. But his Kickstarter is really, really good. I think it, I, if you search Rocket Ship Games, you'll come up with both his blog and his Kickstarter. You should be able to. But it's really, really good. I'm at the Kickstarter page now. This is Joe's third Kickstarter. The first one was for those Infinity like line of sight um, uh, kind of tabs to yep. paint the line of sight on the basis for infinity models. The second one was all of the objectives and little bits that we play with and all the 40K stuff that Joe puts together, which are awesome. Um, and those were 3D printed, and he printed those at home. And this one looks really great. I mean, these are 3D renderings of what these terrain pieces look like. And it's kind of a they, – they look awesome. It's called Colony with a K. The graphic design looks really good. He's got this kind of – like. Com- like communist block kind of font going on. It looks really dope. And you for 25 bucks you get, it's probably 20 some odd different files that you can print, it looks like, on any 3D printer. I don't know much about 3D printing, but I think those STL files that you mentioned are probably cross-compatible across a bunch of different printers. He explained it to me. Once you get the files, people who 3D print... Once you get the files, they know what to do to render them to get them on their printer. Gotcha. Um, I played I played a game with him. I played actually three games with him today. We're not going to discuss that because I lost all three games. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> but but it, but it was using the terrain and the terrain the terrain really fits the scale and it makes a lot of sense and it was it just added depth to the game. I walked in to, to, to where we were playing. It was just a table laid out and I said, "This is great, ready to go." Awesome. Then, then promptly got my clock clean. Well, you know, at least it looked good doing it. <laughs> That's right. For those that might be interested, this looks like it's Infinity and 40K friendly terrain. This is at Kickstarter.com. If you do a search for Rocket Ship Games, which is Joe's gaming moniker, or Colony with a K, you'll find this uh, this Kickstarter. And if I scroll to the top of the page, there are 16 days to go. It is Halloween night in 2017 here when we're recording this episode. 16 days to go. There are currently 71 backers, and he has met his pledged goal of $500 plus some. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Kudos, Joe, for putting out a third successful Kickstarter. Next up, let's talk about Killicans. This is one of my favorite tournaments because you get to cheat in it, you know, and I love cheating. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, it's a great uh, – it's a, a – fundraiser for Phil Abundance, which uh, uh, Joe, who we just talked about, I think Jason and Colin run every year uh, at Red Caps. And uh, it's a very well-inclusive tournament, like uh, Lavelle was saying, just like everything else they do over there, which is great. And you get to you can either bring in cans of food or donate cash. And for every dollar you donate or can you donate, you get a free re-roll. So and what a lot of guys will do is they'll go in there with like 50 cans or 100 cans or like 50 bucks and you just keep re-rolling all game. So I haven't actually been there myself once. Um, this will be my first year playing in it, but I look forward to cheating. This will be fun. <laughs> you know, I think this is our fourth killer cans. I think I've only missed one. I can't remember why I missed it. I think I was traveling. But the very first time they did it, 
um, they had to, because Jason actually makes the delivery to fill abundance, they had to leave the food there. That's how much they collected. And I was a part of that because I had it all worked out. I said, listen, uh, I'm taking 50 cans <laughs> and I'm going to get me 50 re-rolls. After I had gone through my 50 re-rolls, I started buying re-rolls. <laughs> it was really, really good. But they were surprised by the turnout. I think this this month we got a lot of things going on in the Philadelphia area that might take some attention away. But it's a great tournament for a great cause, and it has it's a lot of fun, a lot of fun. I can remember last year I was partnered with Joe at last year's Gillicans, and by the end of it we were in such a heated battle with uh, we were playing – it's a team tournament. It's a team tournament, 1,000 points each, if I remember correctly. So it was Joe and I both playing Imperials. I had my Admech. He had Space Marines. We were playing two Tyranid players, and it was it was getting down to the wire. And we had already used all of our rerolls from the cans we had brought, and I had brought like two cases of stuff. Joe had brought a lot of stuff. So we were basically just filling like a tin cup with dollar bills, like one more. We've got to keep going, got to keep going, got to keep going. <laughs> it became like a, like a $36 game of, a, of 40K just because of all the rerolls we needed. Did, did you win? We did win. We did win. Money well spent. <laughs> Money well spent for a good charity, too. We'll take a short break right there. We will come back in just a moment with uh, uh, managing the meta. We'll talk about some gameplay stuff, and uh, we'll go on from there. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Crew Shaken, Episode 9, Managing the Meta, the second section of our Halloween special episode. I should have started the show by saying it was a Halloween special. Um, a quick Halloween side story. I was out on my front stoop giving out candy before we started recording, guys, and I had the um, 8th edition rulebook sitting next to me in like a magazine, and I had a bowl of candy in my lap, and this young girl walks up, she's probably like 11 or 12 years old, Looks at the rule book. She says, you play Warhammer? I said, yeah. Do you? She said, no. She said, do you play Yu-Gi-Oh? I said, no. Do you? She said, yeah. I said, you should try You should try Warhammer. She said, Yu-Gi-Oh is the best. And she walks away. <laughs> <laughs> she threw me a lot of shade. And she, she really was like, oh, you should play Yu-Gi-Oh. She's like, I heard Warhammer is pretty childish. You know. Uh... <laughs> it's too immature for me, man. Yu-Gi-Oh is where it's at. It was awesome. You never know who you're going to bump into out there on the, uh, the the streets of Philadelphia here. So in this section, guys, managing the meta, we're going to talk about gameplay. I wanted to talk this episode about alternative ways to play 40K. I'm looking for ways to change up how I play 40K, uh, whether it's you know playing a smaller point level or one of the other ways to play that's in the uh, that's in the rulebook. Um, to that end, I went out yesterday and I bought the Open War deck of cards. And what this is, I think this is great. I also really enjoyed that uh, the deck that came out right at the end of 7th edition, the Empiric Storm deck. And I'm still looking for a way to use those in 8th edition, but that's another story. Um, so I, I bought this Open War deck. It's a really nicely packaged deck of, uh, you know, 50-some-odd cards. I'm going to read the uh, the copy that is on the back, uh, or inside the box, rather. It's a little instruction page. I'm going to read this, and then we'll talk about it. So... Open War. The first card just says Open War on it. Two forces prepare to engage each other on the battlefield. How they can deploy and what they must do to emerge victorious is up to the fates to decide. Open War cards are used to determine the instructions for the Open War mission, as described below. 
Take the open war cards and separate them into the five following decks. So it's actually, it's you know, you buy one deck of cards, but it's actually in sections that you have to take apart. There's a deployment deck, there's an objectives deck, there's twists, there are ruses, and there are sudden deaths, okay? So you shuffle each of those groups of cards and put them into, you know, five stacks. You draw the top card from the deployment objectives and twists, and you place them face up so that both players can see them. This is like picking your mission, your deployment, and your objectives kind of all in one shot. So this is completely separate from the 8th edition rulebook at this point. All you're doing is using the deck of cards. And then to the side, you put you put the, the ruses and the sudden death decks to the side for the moment, because you might need those later. The armies. In order to play this mission, you must first muster an army from the miniatures in your collection. You can include any models in your army. So this is not doesn't have to be battle-forged. Can be, certainly can be, but doesn't have to be battle-forged. Doesn't have to be in formations. Can be, but is not required. And this, I think, leads up to why I think this is a great way to get new players into the game. Uh, continuing on the second page of this little thing. Sometimes you may find that you do not have enough models to field a minimum-sized unit which is found on each unit's data sheet. If this is the case, you can still include one unit of that type in your army with as many models as you have available. So, to Lavelle's point about Tom buying a Tau starter kit and playing, you can basically just bring whatever you have in your collection, and this deck is set up in such a way that it's going to build some balance into your game as a new player. I'll keep going. It'll become more clear what I mean there as I keep going. The battlefield. Create the battlefield and set up the terrain. So you basically just... Just do your thing. Just set up whatever you have. Deployment. Both players roll a dice, rolling again in the case of a tie. The the player that rolls highest can choose which of the territories shown on the deployment card will be their deployment zone. So picking deployment zones is straightforward, but it's the options of the deployment zones that I think are kind of cool. I'm looking at the deployment deck right now. I just took it apart. So there's a Hammer and Anvil-looking one. There is a Cities of Death-looking one. There is a Vanguard Strike-looking one, which is in the 8th edition book. There's just dividing the entire table in half. So your deployment zones are touching in the center, which is really cool. That's both horizontally and vertically. There's another deployment here that looks exactly like the Brazilian flag, where there's a circle in the center. There's a null zone around the circle. (laughs) And then each of the other quarters corners of the de- of the table can be a deployment zone. So you can have four different units in each of the four corners of the table and move in to your opponent's zone in the center, which is really, really cool. So there's some great options. There's another one here where player A's deployment zone is 12 inches at the end of the short side of, the, of both sides of the table, and the player B is in the center table 18 inches wide. So they're getting... Um, like a pincer move from the outside or moving into that 8-inch band in the center where your opponent is deployed. So I think so I think some of these might be familiar to 30K Horus Heresy players because I know some of those deployment maps are different from what we're used to in 40K. I think these are cool. Um, I'll keep going. So you pick your deployment, set up, one, you know, uh, I go, you go, I go, you go, I go, you go. Models must set up within their own deployment zone more than three inches away from any enemy models. So if you do have that deployment map where your the deployment zones are touching in the center, you still have to be three inches away from enemy models. If a player's deployment zone is split into several separate regions, units can be set up in some or all of them, as long as all of the models in a unit are set up in the same region. Moving on. 
Objective markers. Sometimes the objectives deck will require the player to set up one or more objective markers on the battlefield. They are placed before any units are set up. Each objective marker needs to be represented by a suitable object, such as a coin or an appropriate piece of terrain. Um, you always measure from the center, etc. Um, it's controlled by models within three inches of them at the end of any turn. Now this is where it gets cool. Ruses and sudden death victories. After both sides have finished setting up, each player must add up the power rating of all of the units in their army. And, Lavelle, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're going to use power rating there, you can probably also use points. Because all you're trying to determine is this. If one army has a total that is greater than the other, then the player with the lower total is allowed to take the top card from the ruse deck. If one army has a total that is at least double the other, then the player with the lower total is also allowed to take the top card from the Sudden Death deck. Ruse and Sudden Death cards are kept secret until they are played. If a Sudden Death card is, can be played, the victory conditions override those found on the objective card for that particular game. First turn, I'll keep reading here, I'm almost done. The player who finished setting up their army first can choose to take the first or second turn. You can try to seize the initiative. Um, the player that achieves, achieves the victory conditions on the objective card chosen for the battle wins a glorious victory. If a sudden death card is played during the battle, that player wins a major victory. If neither player achieves the victory conditions on the objective card, and no sudden death card was played, then the player whose army had the lower total power rating wins a minor victory. So, if you have the smaller army, and you don't achieve the objective, you still win because you had the smaller army. If both armies had the same total power rating, the battle is then a draw. I think this is just awesome. I think this is a really neat way to do things. Because you could walk in there with just a start collecting box or something and play an army of almost any size because you're going to get these cards. Tim. Yeah. Carlos, have either one of you played using that deck? I just got it yesterday. I have not. What, what do you think of it? I played two games um, at the um, Gamers Heaven in Phoenixville. Oh, good. With guys from the uh, Basement Wargaming Group. I played two games. Both times I showed up with a army that was smaller. Okay. I happened to have 1,000 points in my – or maybe 1,200 points in my car. And I played. Okay. One game I tied. The other game I won because of sudden death. Wow! It it was it was it just blew my mind because I had never seen the deck before. It blew my because I didn't know what we were playing. But the, here was the thing about it: when they built their armies, this is what made it even. They didn't know what we were playing. I just could not get my head around that. I was like, "You you have an army, and I have an army, but neither one of us knows what we're playing." Now, if you're playing the um the typical eternal wars out of the book, you know what the scenarios are going to be. But this one, it just totally randomizes it. And then adding those other elements, we know the scenario. Now it's we're adjusting the deployment. And on top of that, we have the, the ruse. And it, it was really, really a different way to play. And it made me feel like I was playing a small elite force trying to reach an objective that they didn't know. Oh, it's so cool that you got that sense from playing a smaller army like that. So I'm, I'm looking at the ruse cards now, Lavelle, and here's here's a great one. Here's a great example of how powerful this can be and how it can rebalance the game if you have a big point differential. For instance, this is the ruse card Tactical Reserves. 
This is what it says. In a display of prudent tactical acumen, you have positioned hidden forces ready to hurl into the breach at the opportune moment. Play this card at the end of any of your movement phases. And this is what you do. You pick one unit from your army that has been destroyed. You can set that unit up again more than nine inches from the army so that the unit is wholly within nine inches of the edge of the battlefield. So you're basically bringing a unit back to life and putting it and deep striking it essentially back onto the board. So if you're down from the get-go by a thousand points and you find yourself in need of a little extra love, like here's, you know, it could be a couple of hundred points back on the table for you to kind of rebalance how the rest of the game is going to go. I think it's really cool. It can be a couple of hundred points in his backfield. Right, right, exactly. They can be anywhere. Read a sudden death. Let's see. So here's one called Blunt. Play this card if you destroy at least half rounding up of the units that your opponent had in their army at the start of the battle. You immediately win. That's great. Here's one called Endure. Play this card if you have at least one model still on the battlefield at the end of the fifth battle round. Oh, this is badass. You win instantly. So if you are getting your ass handed to you, but you still have one model left at the end of the fifth turn, you can drop this card. Game over. We're not rolling for oh continue. <laughs> If you're down, if you're down from the get-go by like half the strength of your opponent's army, one of using these cards doesn't really break the game. It doesn't make it any less fun for your opponent because they still have a big point advantage, but it still keeps you in the game, which I think is amazing for a player who's just getting into 40k, who buys models because they think they're cool, not necessarily because they're going to fill some really good slots in a detachment they want to get or if they want X number of command points or whatever. You can just bring stuff that you think looks good and still have a shot and get introduced to the game in a way that's really fun for the new player and the person who's 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 there for to, to, to do battle. I think that I think this is awesome. I look forward to it. It was this. really, really good. It was really fun and it was exciting. Now in the game that I played, I had both of those. I had bring a, a unit back on the board and I had the sudden death one. And on oh, cool. on the fourth cool. I, I can't remember what I did, but what I brought back on board was my Vindicare Assassin. Nice. <laughs> I know. It's a little sleazy. I was getting crushed. I brought him back. There was a little shenanigan there. In some, in, some, um, in some ruins. And then at the end of the fifth turn, bam, I'm out of here. Mike, drop the mic. Boom. I think it's great. You know, in any way that we can mix it up and change how the game is played, which forces us to think about the game differently, I think is a good thing. And I think it stretches... Stretches the you know the fun value for a new player and makes it interesting for you know some guys who have been playing for a super long time. So if we could go to the main rule book, in the main rule book we have Crucible of War, Eternal War, and Malsham of War scenarios, all which are very different, and they give you the ability to you know play different types of games. My brother Lorenzo is always talking about. Um, asymmetrical games because you can have battles where it's not equal on both sides and this right here allows for those type of games. I also like how in in the the non-standard if you will type of games, they introduce different stratagems that the attacker and the defender has access to. Absolutely. So Lavelle, I'm looking at, I'm in the rule book now um, I'm looking at uh, page 196 in the first Crucible of War mission Meat Grinder First of all, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by an asymmetrical game? And then yeah. talk to us about like why you would like some of the stratagems that have to do with Meat Grinder so much. So an asymmetrical game means that, you know, in a typical game, we have the same amount of points. We have the same 
deployment areas, whatever it is, Vanguard Strike, Dawn of War, we have the same things like that. In an asymmetrical game, um, one side may be down on points, and one or one side could be down on the way it has to deploy. Um, you you want in the meat grinder, the defender has a bigger deployment zone than the attacker. Oh, I see. And that 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 can make a difference. There's still 12 inches be- between them, but the defender has more area with which to deploy their defenses, if you will. Yep. And so the stratagems, the attackers have sustained bombardment, spies, outflanking reinforcements, and the defender has decoys, foxholes, and traps. Now those stratagems aren't anywhere else. They apply to this particular uh, scenario right here. And just if I could read the foxhole one, use the stratagem when one of your infantry unit is hit by a preliminary bombardment, but before the number of hits is determined. Half the number of hits rounding up suffered by the unit. Yeah. Now, that one you would use to counter the attacker stratagem, sustained bombardment. Use this stratagem immediately before rolling to see if a unit is hit by your preliminary bombardment. Roll three dice instead of one. And so all of these things, can you, you get away that you're looking across the table at your opponent. Well, what's he going to do? How's he going to respond to that? I only have so many command points. It's really, really good in taking the game that can be a little bit. Now, you know, the Maelstrom of War cards where you kind of join the objectives every turn. So that does add an element that makes the game a little different. But this can make the game even even more, it can add a different complexity without making it complex. I like that it can get you to think in different ways. I'm looking at the next one, Ambush. If you look at that deployment map, the defender is in this tiny little rectangle in the center of the table and pushed all the way to one of the short ends. And the attacker could essentially wrap entirely around the defender's deployment zone. So that's totally unlike any of the um, Maelstrom, or or a, or a, uh, it's totally unlike any of the other missions in the book, the Maelstrom of War missions or the uh, Eternal War missions, which I think is awesome. So why why do you think these Crucible of War missions aren't as popular? Why do we not play these before the other uh, styles of play so frequently? Carlo, what do you think? I think uh, you know a lot of us are scared to, you know. People don't like change generally, and I think when you dedicate four hours to a game or some, you know, two to four hours to a tabletop game, uh, you feel like you could make a mistake. It could cost you a night of fun, you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. I think a lot of us are scared to try something new um, a lot of time. And it's, uh, I think that's starting to change, though, because with, you know, the way that GW has approached this edition, um, you know, especially like look at the league we're running right now. Uh, it's been very uh, like a lot of the missions they've been putting out, like Alex and Ian have been putting out, have been very asymmetrical. Yes. But the game has still been a lot of fun. So um, I think people and I think uh, people organizing tournaments in in our area at least are starting to see how fun those asymmetrical games can go and ha- like bring forward more of a narrative approach to organizing these tournaments and leagues. Uh, because of the changes GW has made, and I think it's made the game a lot more fun. And I think, you know, uh, we just have to nudge ourselves to try these scenarios, you know. Yeah, I would agree. I think, if anything, locally for us, this Radix campaign is set up asymmetrically, like as Lavelle described. Um, 
So maybe pushing into next year, folks coming out of the campaign after the tournament that ends the campaign in December, maybe this, maybe now's the opportunity to get into some of these different ways to play the game, like using the open war deck or playing some of these Crucible of War missions and mixing it up a little bit. So I, I think I'll try to capitalize on that early next year by trying to get yeah. some folks into the Crucible of War. Tim, let me add, we, we, we are very lucky in our meta. Um, guys like Alex and, and, they, and, and Joe and Colin, they have a firm grasp on game mechanics. And they can use that to, deni- to design scenarios that are not outlandish. And we trust them when they put a scenario out there. We don't. We we know. We 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 know the scenario's not broken. If we were in a meta that didn't have this level of expertise, these types of games would be more precious to us because we wouldn't know. The people involved in setting up the games might not necessarily know how to design a scenario. So, if I could draw your attention to page two hundred and seventy in the book. And this is this is something that they haven't done before in the main book. They have a scenario here for multiplayer, which is really, really interesting. Um, and so, you know, I know a couple of times we've gotten to the table and there have been an odd number of players or whatever the case may be. And or they, we just want there's just four of us and we want to play together. So this is really, really new. Also. On page 272, there's actually a structure for the campaign for people who might not have the wherewithal in their meta to build a campaign together. You see that? How it's got this little flow chart where you go from patrol and then – so it's a real good structure for um, making sure that – and on the next page, they have more where you can use the rules in the book to build your own campaign. And I have to say, I've never really been big on – campaigns until we started this and i think it really adds a different depth to the game to be able to to continue to play and continue to build because we get together almost once or twice a week at the store and we get games together but a campaign gives you a little bit of different drive i really recommend Mm -hmm. it lavelle i'm embarrassed to say that i had not even turned to page 270 in the new rulebook yet i had no idea what this multiplayer battles page was even here how cool is this it's a deployment map for four players and it's a way you can get four players without playing a team game where you're splitting the number of points that is so cool yeah there's a lot of good stuff in this here book the battle zone stuff there's a lot of uh, there's a lot more depth to the ways that you can play yeah. that I think are really, really good. Did you see the stratagem in here? The bribe stratagem? I like that. Right. <laughs> Read it. What does it do? Read it. Uh, you, it's one, one plus CP. You can use the stratagem at any time to give any number of your remaining CPs to another player to bargain for a temporary ceasefire, alliance, betrayal, etc. <laughs> that sounds really cool. That's awesome. Really good. Yeah. I think you know I'm going to call I'm going to call out an early uh new year's resolution is to try some more varied ways to play the game. I'm I'm excited to try new stuff. I'm equally I was equally excited when that uh that book at the end of 7th edition came out, Planetary Onslaught, I think, which had like Cities of Death rules in it and it had all those other like different ways to play supplements but all grouped into one book. I was really excited about that and then we switched to 8th, but I think 
exploring new ways to play the game is going to be like my new thing in next year, 2018. is going to be, all right, let's not do Eternal War or Maelstrom. Let's try some of this other cool stuff and see what happens. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that opportunity. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Like, I'm, I'm really happy with this campaign right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, eventually, like, playing, just going and meeting at the shop every week on, a, I think we do Thursdays, you know, and getting a game in is still really fun, but... It's nice to change it up every now and then. It makes it, the game fresh, and you know that's all, what we all loved about Eighth was that you know made the game real fresh and light and fun to play again. And I think that uh, bringing some of the stuff like you were talking about, like the like going into a game and not knowing what you're going to be playing is you know it's makes you a little gives you some butterflies. It's like going to play a tournament. Yep. You know, it gives you a little bit of butterflies in your stomach, but you know, it makes for a really awesome game. Agreed. But it does prevent the other player from building an army that's just going to steamroll over you. Because they don't know what's going to, what it's going to be. You could get anything. Right. We're going to take a short break. We will return with Orbital Upload, which are tips and tricks. We'll be back. Shaken, welcome back. Episode 9, Halloween Special, Spooky Scary. This is the Orbital Upload section where we talk about tips and tricks, things that are cool that we've discovered that we like, that we want to talk about. Push fit models. I had talked about them a little bit earlier when I was talking about the Shadespire models, how they're an easy way to get into the game because you don't have to get super messy with plastic glue or crazy glue or any kind. You can just kind of push them together and they just stick um carlo i know you just put together some push fit stuff what was your experience like why'd you like it uh you know i you know i didn't think i would like it because um i'm like a traditionalist i'm like oh man uh, i don't like how they're introducing pigs make it easier but i you know i bought a, a three pack of intercessors and uh it it's really quick and you know it's really nice for painting because you can you know so each model has for the intercessors at least in the when it comes in the three pack the torsos front half of the torso is connected to the legs and then the head is on a peg so you put the peg head in and then it gets sandwiched by another the back piece of the torso and then the backpack goes on a peg and the two arms go on a peg so everything you can put together really fast and then if you want to do like prime it up and do like a zenith priming or something like that um you could you could do that and then take the model apart and paint each piece individually. Like if you want to take your arms off and get the bolter away from the torso to get to the uh, insignia on the chest, you can do that. So, and they you know you could shake the model around. I'm shaking the model around in my hand right now. I still haven't put any glue uh, on it, and it holds together really nicely. So, I think it. Uh, and you know, for people that, I think the biggest dilemma I've had in 40k is wanting to play the game. And I'm sure everybody has this wanting to play the game, buying new models and saying, do I wait to put them together um, until I have like certain pieces painted, in which case it'll prevent me from being able to play with them. Or do I rush and put them together and then later have to deal with the consequences of that? Like, and you see that a lot with like big vehicles and stuff like that, or, 
you know, like the Marines who cover their chests with the bolters. And a lot of people get around that by using sticky tack. But I think this is kind of like a good alternative to that, the way that they mold these new um, Primaris Marines here. It sounds like a great alternative to using blue tack to get stuff primed um, and ready for base coating at least, and then being able to play with them pretty quickly. It didn't occur to me that one of the advantages of push-fit models is that you can paint them, take them apart, paint them, take them apart, paint them, take them apart. I think it's awesome. I don't know why that never occurred to me, but it's a great, that's a great benefit of this kind of model. And I look forward to, I look forward to A, putting them together for the first time, and then C, to B, uh, and then B, seeing if I can use the fact that they, yeah, you can pull them apart again to my benefit when I paint them. Because I usually do use blue tack, but then there's always, you know, it's, it's never perfect. There's always a little bit sticking out of the edge. You have to use so little that it either doesn't, it's not enough to stick, or you use a little bit too much and there's a little bit of a line around the outside where you can't get paint with the airbrush or with the brush because there's blue tack there. So I think I think you've stumbled upon a nice benefit of these push fit models. Lavelle, how does all hey, this how does all this wait, strike you? Wait, I have a question for Carlo. Yeah. Carlo, mm-hmm. does the arm already have the weapon on it? It does. So, so could you conceivably push fit a different weapon? Oh, good question. Um, I think it depends on the model because a lot of these are in the new dynamic poses. And it seems like when I was putting – so, for instance, there's this one – the one guy that comes with his uh, – he holds his bolter up in the air and then he has the uh, communication – the auspex um, in his left hand. Um, like to get the arm on – I. Th- you pretty much have to have it the way that the hole is for the peg. You have to have the bolter pointing straight up in the air. So if you wanted to put another weapon on that maybe he holds in front of his chest, like if you had a plasma gun that you wanted to put on, I don't really know what the Primaris Marines come with. uh, But if you had another gun that he wanted to hold in a different pose, I think it would be difficult to just peg it right on. Cause I'm trying to stick this bolter on now, like, in front of him and it doesn't want to stay because of the length of the peg and then the the angle of uh, insertion into the, the socket on the arm. It, 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 so it's not – okay. I, you know, that that's really interesting. I have not purchased a new model um, in some time, and I'm real hopeful because that was one of the problems with the Necron models, and that, and that was like the pieces were so small. And like, for example, the, the, the little glass rods, the little glass, the little plastic rods, I'm hopeful when they release the codex that they'll put out newer models that make a lot more sense the way he's describing. Because I've been seeing people put together their Space Marine pieces and thinking, well, that that's pretty cool. But I don't, you know, a lot of my models are really, really old models. And I'm hopeful, like I just bought a new tomb spider um, a couple of weeks ago and started putting that together. And it's, it's really, really fiddly. And I'm like, e, I haven't even finished putting that together, but I'm hopeful the way he's describing it, that when they, they go to this type of model, because, you know, if you have modeling skills, none of this is a problem, but a lot of the newer players, they want to play the game, but they might not have the modeling skills. So painting is one thing. But modeling skills is really, really important when you talk about a tomb spider with that comes with 12 different legs, 12 different tiny legs. And 
and you're gluing each one. So, you know, this is really interesting what he's describing to me. Carla, quick question. Are you adding yeah. those intercessors to your uh, Space Wolves army? That was the plan. Um, we'll see. I'm, I think I might swap some of their heads out for the uh, Space Wolf heads just to make them blend in a little bit better. Um, yeah, I just want I wanted to play around with them because I heard their mechanics are a little bit different. Not wildly different, but their weapons are a little bit different. So, um, yeah, I heard. I really expected your your codex to be next. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, I'd be lying if I said uh, I wasn't impatient at this point to get it. But <laughs> um, yeah, but I think like uh, I forget which one of you guys was saying it earlier, but I think it was Lavelle. That even though the codex isn't out yet, I don't feel like my army's underpowered. You know what I mean? I feel like we're balanced pretty evenly right now. Um, and I know I'm like the competitive. If you go up to the competitive level, there's some uh, differences there. You know, people kind of uh, abusing certain combinations of characters and stuff like that. But I don't think at are in in our meta at least, or even in like a, a casual play um, setup, that you're going to see a big difference between the indexes and the codexes. You know, I, I just I, I, there have been a lot of rumors that I was really hopeful about that the next that before the end of the year we're going to be looking at a Space Wolf uh, codex in the Return of Lemon Rust. So we'll see. Yeah, and then we'd have uh, something that's throw up against Mortarian between Magnus and Mortarian we are uh, we're hurting we're hurting alright we'll take a quick break and be right back and welcome back we are here in section 4 The Chosen which is our best of the hobby a quick product or a book or whatever that we're kind of excited about that we want to share with our listeners Lavelle why don't you kick us off so you know I was talking earlier about um, a previous position I had that was in Harrisburg and I drove to Harrisburg and back every day and that's three hours a day on the on the road and plus I do I still do a lot of driving and so I do a lot of audiobooks and I do the typical audiobooks, and I have a lot of great audiobooks that I will recommend. Um, and I get them from Audible. But the Black Library has a set of audio dramas, which is not the same as an audiobook, that is absolutely incredible. Um, they're not as long as an audiobook. A typical audio drama will be maybe an hour and a half, maybe, but it's typically something closer to like 70 minutes, maybe 60 minutes. But it's not the same as an audio book in that it's a lot of special effects. It's a lot of it's just an incredible thing. I've read two that were really good. One was about a Necron incursion and it it's about the Necrons using time to shift back and forth through their pocket dimension, which was absolutely great. And I want I read one with uh, about Tarius Tellian, the scout of the Ultramarines. I've read I keep saying that I listened to it. If you have not had the chance to listen to an audio drama, you can get it on your phone. You can get it in, in a computer. Just get the file. You order it, and then after you pay for it, then you download it. You don't have to wait. 
you can order, order the CD, but I just do the download. I would tell you experience one, having listened to a lot of audio books, the audio dramas are really, really good. Um, the Burning of Prospero, Prospero is a book that I listened to, and it was my first black library book, and it was really long. It was like 30 hours, um, which, you know, it's like 10 days driving back and forth on my commute. And then I, I, I just decided to try an audio drama. It's really, really good. Now, I want to point out, it's not the same as reading a book, nor is it meant to replace reading a book. I do recommend reading the books. They're great reads in and of themselves. But an audio drama can change a commute or it can change a long drive into an adventure. It's really, really good because it's like watching a movie while you drive. And you, you will cheer at the appropriate points. You'll, you'll hear the right things. It, they're really, really good. So the audio dramas are different in that it's different. It's a, it's a, it's like a, it's a cast of actors, correct? It's a cast of voiceover actors, whereas an audio book is one reader kind of just going through the whole text. Is that correct? Let me say this. James Marsner does the Dresden audiobooks, and he does a great job of, for being one person, for getting out across every other person in the book. He does a great job. So when Dresden is talking, you hear, you, you, you know you're listening to Dresden. I don't know how he does it. But this one is not just the cast of characters cast of characters it's the backgrounds it's the music it is the special effects and it's and you know their description of various things there's one that i listened to about the dark eldar descending on a hive world but when they get there um a unit of space marines was waiting for them and it's just a, an incredible incredible story to listen to so it's the music it, it's um, if, if I can give this description, it gives more depth to the listening than just listening to somebody read the story. You follow the story when somebody's reading to you, you are engaged. But it's more like when you do an audio drama, it's like reading with your ears. When you listen to it, it's more depth to it. So it's a real experience. When I was younger, I mean, much younger. My, on Sunday nights, my father used to have us listening to something that I believe came on NPR, and it was actually that, audio dramas. Oh. And they were very short. And um, so when I got this, I said, let me give this a try. And it was really, really good. Go to the Black, Black Library. I, they're not that expensive. Just try one. And if I could recommend... If I could recommend one, try the one with Tobias Tellian. I got turned on to the audio dramas either last year or year before, where I think they're going to do it again this year, where Black Library does like a like a 12 days of Black Library special, where for the 12 days right around the holidays, right around New Year's, you get like a short story, or in the, the case of what we're talking about now with the audio dramas, a short audio drama, like a 10 or 15 minute snippet of something but it's not a snippet it's a complete story but it's built up in that audio drama way where there's music and there's sound effects and there's multiple actors and i thought it was awesome it it, it is really fun to listen to it is super engaging are you so are you uh, using are you say, using the black library audio app to download? I am. you are yeah i like the app. i am yeah i use cool. that i want to say that you know if you are playing 40k and you have never read a 40k book you do not know what you're missing one of the things about the 40K universe, whether you like it or not, it is so deep. It is so in-depth. 
here in my house, we still argue about the great injustice that was done against the thousand sons. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. argument. I got a that was my voice totally cause, warranted. Because yes, <laughs> says the baseball player Justin will run over here and start telling me how we deserved it. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the things that people don't like me to, for me to talk about is how if you understand the entire universe, the Necrons won the war in heaven. So we are the rightful owners of the galaxy. So I like those arguments, but if you start reading into it and reading the stories, it does you really give you a lot of depth into what's going on in the universe, and it helps you understand the difference between looking at the stats on the book and building an army that is numerically and statistically efficient versus building an army that's consistent with the way the force would play. I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like as I'm exploring all these other skirmish games, you know, these smaller games, I think the one place where every other game system has a ton of catch-up work to do is in the narrative, is in the backstory, is in the, the world-building exercise. I think that you know, Games Workshop has set the standards so high over the last 30-plus years in building these characters out and in building this world out that it's, it's really it's a huge uphill battle for other companies to compete if they're trying to compete in terms of the storytelling elements that are going on beyond the tabletop. So I think that's one place that, that this, this game in particular really shines is the fact that if you do like to read books or if you like to, to listen to audio dramas and what have you, they got. They have a product for you. You know whether it's in, Inquisitor books or Space Marine books or Sisters of Battle books or whatever. There's there's a, a ton, a ton to get into. I'm I'm glad you brought up a book, Lavelle, for your uh, piece of the chosen here because I was going to do the same thing. I started reading the uh, Sanctus Reach series, which is orcs and space wolves and a little bit of Grey Knights, I think, mixed in there. So I picked up this four book set used at a uh, a really small gaming store in South Jersey. Um, and this is the first Black Library novel that I've ever read that is completely from the orc perspective. Right down to, you know, the, the way that they speak, the way that, you know, the whole thing, there's not a single human, or humi, as they're called in the book. There's not a single human voice in the entire book, right? Which, for the first 50, 60, 70 pages, really bothered me. Like I felt like I was reading almost a kid's book because the the way that they speak is so kind of base and you know inarticulate. It took me a while to get my mind around what I was reading and how the characters were. It, it just it just took me a while because there wasn't any there was no human presence in the book. After that point, I started to appreciate the humor in how base the orcs are in how they behave and in how they act in how the the iconography that they paint on their stuff, they just do that out of instinct. They don't know what any of that means. They don't know what anything really does. And this particular book is about the uh, like the, the, big, the Big Mac orcs, the ones that can actually build stuff and do stuff. So they can build things, but they really have no idea what they're doing. They don't know why anything exactly works the way that it does. Sometimes in this book, it almost seems like there's a voice that pops into their head and tells them to do something a certain way that just makes it work. But there's no real rhyme or reason to any of it, right down to the fact that in the middle of this battle where they're invading this, this human planet and you know blowing the whole place up, they all start fighting with each other for really no reason because of some weird grudge. And there's like, 
you know, there's a lot of infighting and there's this clan trying to take out this clan and they want this mech to fight this mech and it's really a mess. You know, the whole orc thing is just this huge space mess that just descends on this planet and turns it into a junkyard. Um, but it took me a while to get into the book, but once I did, I really did enjoy reading it. This one was the first of the Sanctus Reach book called Evil Sun Rising was the name of it by Rob Sanders, I think. Evil Sunrising. I did really enjoy it. Sure, it's a novella, so I think it was only like 140, 150 pages maybe. But uh, I just put that one downstairs and I took up the second edition in the volume of four, which is The Red Wah um, that I'm going to start tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. So do check out these uh, um, Sanctus Reach novels and don't let the orc language throw you as it did me because it is worth sticking with and uh, getting a lot out of. Aren't the orcs the oldest of all the races that are here? Because the orcs weren't, weren't they created by the old ones? They were one of the final races that the old ones created to fight the Necron. Really? Yeah, them and the Eldar. Okay, I didn't know that the, uh, that the orcs were an old one's creation. I didn't think we knew where they came from. I thought I, th- I I could be wrong, but I think I remember reading it. You might be right. The only, the, really, the only thing I know about the origin of the orcs is that they grow like mushrooms. You know, it's like a spore kind of a thing. They just kind of pop up out of nowhere, and that they're clans. That, that's all I really know, and that they don't know much. I'm going to look into that. There's two. El- I knew there are two orc gods. There's Gork and Mork, which I don't. I don't think there's any like serious ecclesi- ecclesiarchy at work there. But there's two orc gods that they pray they pray to depending upon what clan. But it is. I really don't know much more about it. I have the wiki up right now. Oh, hit, hit us, yeah. The first paragraph. So the, the orcs are a biologically engineered species created more than 60 million Terran years ago as a warrior race, originally called the Krork, with a K, K-R-O-R-K, by the long-vanished reptilian alien species known as the Old Ones, whom the orcs refer to as the Brain Boys. <laughs> the orcs were created by the Brain Boys to fight the Necrons and their Satan masters in the great interstellar conflict called the War in Heaven that shattered the galactic civilization of the Old Ones that existed prior to the rise of the Eldar. I studied this in college. <laughs> <laughs> there was no official class. Yeah. This is all I studied. Master's degree in orc history. Yeah, Carlo, what about you? What do you have for us for the chosen section here? I have to say just going back to those intercessors. Yeah, that's like the most recent uh, GW purchase I made. I did it last week after our uh, D&D game at Red Caps. A little imp- imp- I try to make an impulse buy every time I go in there just to keep it uh, going, you know. And uh, That's funny. I try to make just one impulse buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got uh, these guys, and with the rest of the money I was going to spend there, I got a parking ticket. So, oh uh, no! There, we'll <laughs> hey, Carlo, can you talk to us a little bit about your basing? Ice bases for the yes, base? yes, because you you know you've got the most incredible bases. They're consistent with the color. It's it's really how are you doing it? So uh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I did I did steal that from a guy named and I got it. His name's James Collard, and I, I found him on a uh, Facebook. He goes by the name of Brushstroke. I think he had posted something on the 40K um, Facebook page at one point. It was a tutorial for these bases, and I had it saved uh, in my Facebook tab for like a year. And then when we were getting ready for Nova, I was like, hey, why don't I take a shot at this? Because I really wanted to um, get away from that 
baking soda and glue snow thing I had going on for a while. And uh, I did not know that that was that was. That yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was all just baking soda and, and uh, Elmer's glue. So, uh, but the the ice bases are, it's Woodland Scenics Realistic Water. So you take a, you take a, a 40K base and you cut the rim away from the flat section of the base. So all you have left is that rim. And you put a piece of thin plastic on the bottom. In my case, I, I bought some of those um, like uh, leftover food containers with the plastic that goes on the top. And that's like a really great plastic to use for this. So you glue that to the bottom. Uh, and you have to make sure it's sealed because then you pour this realistic water from Woodland Scenics into it about like half a millimeter or a millimeter uh, of that and let it dry. Um and then you take a turquoise wash and hit that with it, let it dry, and then pour the stuff called Distress Crackle Paint on top of it. And you have to make sure it's kind of bubbled out um, and let that cure for like 24 hours, and it'll naturally create cracks on its own. And then you just hit it with a white dry brush, and it comes out um, really nice looking. It looks like a like your models are standing on this like super... Um, randomly cracked ice lake kind of a thing um and it really worked out well for i think the larger bases that i did like the imperial night um on the troops uh, on my marines it was it came out pretty nice still but it tended to uh, because i was rushing through and doing a lot at once uh I, the crackle paint didn't really dry that evenly and it was sunk in a little bit but it still came out fairly well um and then the <laughs> i don't know if i think i may have talked about this in the last podcast but when we were going to nova or i'd come back from nova but i tried to do a display board with it and i did it a week ahead of time thinking it was enough time but i poured the realistic water in so thick that within like five days it still hadn't dried and just like a very thin top layer had dried, so I had to pop it like a pimple Ugh. and like squeeze it all out, and then uh, try and salvage it uh, by, you know, putting the wash on and doing the crackle paint, uh, and then just covering it with some snow and stuff. But I, I didn't know that know, it was think, a wash on top of the clear um, woodland scenics water that gives it that kind of blue glow. That's really cool. Yeah, it's like a, I think they recommend P3 in the tutorial, but I just used um, some. What was it? The what's that? Lotharn blue, I think sure. it is. Yeah, I just mix that with a a medium, um, and uh, that uh, used that to cover it up. And you want to go like really thick on it because it'll dry light. It'll dry thin. So and it almost makes like that. It gives it that kind of blue, watery kind of. It's like a thin layer. It's 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 more it's more than just a wash, really. When when it when it's in your ice bases, it really does make it look like frozen water. That's what gives it that blue kind of aqua glow. Yeah, well, that's a lot of that is the combination with that, and then the realistic scenics. Because when it when the uh, realistic water dries, it creates like a ripple effect. So when you put the wash on top of it, it does look like water so you could just end it there and if you didn't want if you just want to make a kind of like a sea effect or something like that like a river 
I saw really cool when we were at Nova, um, some of those, uh, the Lord of the Rings four by four boards that they were playing. Oh on. yeah, they were great. <laughs> I got that one with the, uh, the rapids going down with the tree that had fallen across. And, uh, it looked like they had taken like a, a brush and some epoxy and just like painted a bunch of streaks with the epoxy and then dry brushed over it or something. It looked like rapids. I will post a link in the uh, Facebook for that product if we can find it. Also, to close out the chosen section, I will post a link to the Woodlands Scenics water product that Carla was talking about. I will post a link to the Tellian audio drama that Lavelle liked, and I will post a link to Evil Sun's Rising, which is the novella that I recommended. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with future history. We're talking about the Inquisition for Halloween. We'll be back. Episode 9 of Crew Shaken. We're talking about the Inquisition today. Innocence proves nothing is the inquisitorial motto. That's the motto that stretches across all three of the different orders or ordoses of the Inquisition. So originally I wanted to talk about, you know, like some Inquisition backstory, origin tale kind of stuff. Talk a little bit about the uh, how they play in 8th edition the Inquisition characters, how you can add them to your army, which I know Lavelle is into. And then I, I bumped into bumped into a guy at Adepticon last year who was painting these really unusual, totally customized miniatures, totally like kit-bashed, sculpted little things that were recognizable as 40K miniatures, but were totally different from other things that I had seen. We were sitting together in the hobby section, we started chatting, and he was saying that, yeah, this is a new inquisitorial warband that he was painting to play the Inquisitor RPG slash skirmish game with. I said, oh, what's that? So he started telling me about it. Apparently it was released in the ni- in the early 2000s, it did not last for very long. The rules were given out for free, and it was originally played with 54 millimeter miniatures, I think, so they were bigger than 40K miniatures at the time, so they were really big. But then GW dropped, like, all support for it. Like, it didn't sell well, it was kind of confusing, and it didn't, you know, they just, they just nixed it, they just wiped it all out. But then this big fan community kind of, this, this fan community popped up around the game to keep supporting it in their own way. And people still play it to this day. It's not very common, but it's this whole other game. Apparently, it's like ridiculously stat heavy. It is hard to get through. It is a, it is a grueling RPG that you play with miniatures in terrain. RPG in the sense that there's a game master and there are stats that characters can accumulate across different missions and whatnot. But it's a, it's like a D100 dice system and it's, there's a modifier for like everything. After they stopped making the 54mm miniatures, which I tried to find on eBay but can't find them, people started playing it with other scale miniatures, because I guess you can adapt the rules to be any scale if, if, if all things are equal. So people are playing it with 28mm miniatures. So I found this website, inq28.blogspot.com. Carlo and Lavelle are looking at this site now. Th- this 
this little battle report here, the photographs associated with this battle report, these freaky little total grimdark, gruesome-looking models that are, you know, really customized, and the terrain they're playing on. I saw this today, and I went on eBay, and I bought the rule book for Inquisitor. It was $9, because this looks really cool. Am I right, guys? I mean, this is really neat-looking. This is a totally different kind of terrain set. This is... Models look totally different. I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what their weapons yeah, are. Yeah, they're sweet. But you can tell it's you can tell it's the it's the 40k world. But this is some other thing entirely, right? Which I guess is very inquisitorial. Yeah, it looks like that it. one guy's got a bit of an acne problem or something. I don't know. But uh. <laughs> there's something going on with his face. There's definitely some weird face stuff going on. There's one guy here. It looks like he's in power armor. Inquisitor Dobros Malik, accompanied by the Pentitentia Cult Militia. I mean, that's just, that just sounds awesome. I want to get into that. I wonder, now, um, do you play each model, like does each person play a model or does each person play a squad? Because it looks like they've got a few different squads of guys down here. So do you... From what I understand, it is squad-based, okay. yes. It is squad-based tactical warfare. Yeah. Now, can people in it die like in Shadow War uh, where, you know, a model, roll, see if a model dies when they fall unconscious or whatever, and then they're out of the campaign? I don't know, but I would imagine that's, that's part of the ass-kicking nature of it, I would imagine, yeah. Well, well let, me, let me just say, Lorenzo Buford, James, and James in our meta, yeah. um, they all play Inquisitor. Oh, really? Um, they still play it, and they've been trying to get me to play it. They see me um, running my role-playing games, and what they say generally is, it has a lot of those elements in that there is kind of a game master. Yeah. And he is running the he's controlling one side and the group is controlling another side. They really they really like it. I started the segment by talking about that because I think the game looks really great. I think those models are really great. I think they're I think it's interesting to me because it is kind of the backwaters of the 40k universe that we know and love so much, right? This is not about space marines. This is a uh, this is about what goes on behind the scenes. The, this is the shadowy world that is the the side of the Imperium that doesn't get the uh, doesn't get a lot of attention, but there's still a ton going on within the Ordos of the uh, of the Inquisition. So to kick us off, the Inquisition was started right at the end of the Horus Heresy. Right around the time of the Siege of Terra, the Emperor got together with Malkador the Sigilite and said, some really bad stuff is going to go on. We need a new way to fight. We need a new way to fight Xenos, aliens. We need a new way to fight Chaos Demons. And we need a new way to fight the heretics amongst us, the the mutant and the strange um, and the, the heretical amongst uh, the human race, right? So Malkador got together. He got people together and he got Astartes together. And out of that initial meeting came the three branches of the Inquisition, which is the Ordo, Ordo Zenos, the Ordo Malleus, and the Ordo Hereticus. Zenos deals with aliens, Malleus deals with demons, and Hereticus deals with, guess what, heretics. What's really cool about it is, at the same time, the Grey Knights were formed. The Grey Knights being that Malleus... The, you know, the real aggressive arm of the, the Space Marine Malleus Inquisition helpers, right? 
And the Death Watch was formed right around this same time to be the go get 'em arm of the Ordos Xenos, which deals with all those alien threats to humanity. All kind of wrapped around the, the end of the Horus heresy right before the Emperor was interred on the Golden Throne. A lot of great characters here because they are people. Inquisitors are people. They are extraordinary people, yes. A lot of them are psychers. Tim, I got to jump in here. I let you go on. Do you believe that? That can't be. The exact history that you just gave us can't be. Because the Inquis- I believe that the Inquisition has us believing that's the history. <laughs> I think the, the the Inquisition started much later. You think? Because you remember when they had the whole thing with the, the priests? Who went awry and started the in the ministerium started the, the the kind of the revolution? The Inquisition would have put him down if they were there. So so, so, so this is so what do you think is this is what do you think is the real timeline? What, what do you think is the real timeline? So I you know one of the things about the Imperium the Imperium is so big that they need an internal and an external boogeyman. Oh yeah, and that the Inquisition. That's a good way to put it. And the the Inquisition, you know, um, the Inquisition can pretty much check anybody. But the way the Inquisition is set up, it's they can't even check themselves. So one Inquisitor has to have a lot of clout to go head to head. And when you read the books, one of the things that they describe is often there can be war between two Inquisitors and their acolytes, but you never see it. And they can actually throw opposing forces at each other, have them fight it out. And the rest of the Inquisition doesn't necessarily get involved unless it gets too big. The Inquisition is so huge, but it is so steeped in, and I'm not going to say mystery, lies. (laughs) Because they need it that way. That's the only way they can retain power because of what you just said. They are normal people. And it's like these are these are people, these are psychers, right, with extraordinarily powerful weapons, but they're also like the most skeptical, cynical people they could possibly find, and they're all a little bit flawed and insane. So like you said, oftentimes inquisitors are going after other inquisitors because they'll think, oh, this guy's a heretic, or this guy's colluding with demons, or this guy's got a friend who's an Eldar. So there's, all like you said, there's like these backwater wars that happen right. within the Inquisition before they even get out there to help humanity. But listen it's to like this. being in high school again. It's totally like being in high school, yes. I like it. It's like clicks against, it's clicks against clicks. The three, the three different orders, they, they disagree about what is the greatest threat. Yes. So chaos is the greatest threat. Are you crazy? The greatest threat is to the aliens. What's wrong with you? The greatest threats are these people inside us, yeah. the heretics. <laughs> so all, well, you go do your thing, we go do our thing, we go do our thing. And so all of this thing kind of comes out. But here's my question about the Grey Knights. Yeah. Where did they really come from? They weren't around during the, or am I correct, incorrect in saying this, during the Horse Heresy. They were not. And, you know, when when the, the, the terrible tragedy that was Prospero took place, it was all about them using psychic powers. Yeah. So where did the Grey Knights really come from? So Malkador, after he assembled these 12 individuals, these eight loyal Astartes and these four imperial lords who were sort of the, the core, those eight Astartes became the Grey Knights. 
They were so they sort are, of he, he, they were on. they were sort of so Malkador's. They were Malkador's private chapter. Hold on. So he went and gathered eight psychic Astartes. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Keep on preaching your propaganda. No. <laughs> <laughs> These were psychers who were not bound by the the council the uh, the Nicaea the Council of Nicaea right the uh, the edict that said that space marines shouldn't use librarians anymore right which led to the burning of Prospero and that huge rift. These were these this chapter, the six hundred and sixty sixth chapter of space marines. Doesn't didn't adhere to that at that time. It was it was it, it existed much like the Inquisition as a body outside of that. Well, hold on now. I'm going to challenge you here. Mm. So that council took place before the burning of Prospero, mm-hmm. and so he had to go out to these other chapters and find. Did they all come from one chapter? And here's the other thing: How are their gene seeds being mixed? Because each one of the gene seeds is different. Lavelle, frankly, I'm the, I'm a little frightened to continue this conversation. <laughs> the Inquisition might be listening. I don't know who's hearing this. I don't know this. who listens to this podcast, Lavelle. <laughs> this is what's going on because what this is what we're learning from. Um, uh, who's the big guy? Belisarius Call. Yeah. He actually was there when the emperor did his thing to create the gene seeds, but he can't remember it because he's so jacked up. Right. They have some other gene seeds somewhere. That's the only way they could have come up with this. That's the first thing. The second thing is we can't ignore all those other chapters, all those other primarchs that we know nothing about. Wait, so, so we Cole, didn't, Cole didn't take notes on that? He was just he, like – like somebody was like, Gra- Grandpa, do you remember how that bird created – the gene seed, uh, you know, I, I wasn't paying attention at the, the time. Way that, <laughs> it's, it's in the Mechanicus Codex, the Codex. What it says is because he's been fighting so much and he's had to replace various parts, he has some knowledge but no memory of the knowledge. Again, I think, Lavelle, it goes back to what you just said about the Imperium being so big, is that over the course of 10,000-plus years, Call has, I mean, even the best – data vaults, right? Even the best systems that are designed to keep things contained, these things eventually do fall apart. So over 10,000 years, there are parts of Belisarius' call that have been rearranged and reprogrammed, and he's got little sparks kind of firing in his brain every now and again that wipe certain things out, you know? It's 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 very similar to how I feel about, not to get so sidetracked, but from the Falakadia books, that's why I liked Trazen the Infinite's character so much. Because the way his character was written, he's the Necron that had the um, uh, yep. The, what, did, what did he call it? The vault? What's the vault called? The, yeah, um, he, he has the library. That's right. Where he keeps he keeps people. Right. He keeps car- He keeps uh, personalities in this vault. You know, in the Tesseract vault. That's what it is. Tesseract vault. But the way that his character is written, you can feel how ancient and therefore twitchy his mind is. Like he's wait, re- hold on, hold on. I got to correct you a little bit. What he has is he's had these museum tableaus of history, and he grabs races. In the middle of a battle, he'll grab an entire group and freeze them. And he has all these tableaus that he, where he records various pieces of history. He doesn't know why he does it. He feels a compulsion because he thinks it's going to be important. It's like his cabinet of curiosities. You know, it's like his Victorian right. era cabinet of curiosities. I bring he's got like a wet. A wax museum, but the people are 
not wax. Real. <laughs> and that that's where Grayfax when they started losing the chaos, he released Grayfax and her um and her guys to start fighting. And she was like, Well, I don't I don't know what's going on here, but let's fight. But the thing that's interesting, when she came out, she looked at Celestine and said, Wait, well, this looks like a demon here. <laughs> this I might right. need to shoot this, this person. Kind of <laughs> right. This is this is this is some heretical behavior going on. <laughs> Remember I, I told you that I had all the books here. Yeah. <laughs> so what they describe, you know, because Call is, and it comes out, he is quite the combatant, and he has reclaimed yes. more, um, what do they call STCs than anybody. But each time, you know, he doesn't get away those with those things without some damage, and most of his deeds they say were filled data stacks. But you know, every time you know he's lost a piece of his flesh. You know, he he keep he he can retain the knowledge, but not the memory of where he learned it from. It sure. says, for instance, much of Carl's biocraft was learned by assisting the greatest geneticist that mankind has ever known, the Emperor, in the development of the black carapace membranes implanted into space marines. At the time, Carl's body was still largely fast, while the eyes that that then beheld the Emperor had been replaced. The technique Call absorbed during his understudy remain even if the Arc Magus Dominus has no recollection of that service. He don't remember doing it, but he's got the knowledge, which <laughs> right. is a little scary. But he knows it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like remembering what you learned in college, but not right. how you learned it. You don't remember the class, but you took something out of it. Yeah. So all of this stuff, when you – there is a point at which, at which the history is all subject, and that point is the Horus Heresy. After the Horus heresy, everything is subject. Right. But you know, with prime, with um with uh the Prime Gulliman coming back, he has memory of stuff. Sure. Sure. Right. He and Lemon things. Rush, yeah. when he comes back, he'll yeah. know stuff. So the yeah. people who really know the most stuff are actually the Chaos people. Because they are that old. Many of the Chaos Space Marines are that old. And so there's a lot of things that have transpired between here and there. And it was Call who knew something about the, the gates on Cadia. We couldn't re- figure out what it was, but he knew something. And the problem with the Necrons, who would know everything, when they went to sleep, when they woke up, they were all jacked up. Right. The only people who were not jacked up was the Maynarch dynasty. And that was because the Silent King took very specific things to keep them concealed from even the other Necron. They were ferreted away on a, a deep, dark Right, and he had a, sure. a whole bunch of yeah. things in place to keep them um, shielded from stellar phenomenons and things happening like that. So, you know, there's a lot of bit of mystery. Coming back to the Inquisition, I think a lot of what the Inquisition does, because remember, at that point, em- the Emperor was not revered as a god. But they, th- yeah, right, and some of the Space Marines don't do that now. But they needed to yep. do that in order to keep these people in these far stretches in check. And so the ministerium yeah. began to, pre- 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 to preach that. And they needed somebody to do something if anybody counted that. Up pops the Inquisition. So there's there's more to that uh, that that founding story. And there's an alternate founding story that we'll talk about briefly too. So when story A... You know, Emperor kind of said, all right, Malkador, we need to get some people together. We need to find a new way to fight the alien, the mutant, and the heretic, right? <laughs> um, and and, and, and uh, chaos, you know, demons. Um, 
among those individuals recruited by Malkador were the following. This is one of the theories, right? Captain Nathaniel Garrow of the Death Guard. Awesome character from the heresy. Garrow is... We've got Captain Iacton Cruz of the Luna Wolves. We've got that uh, we've got Kirill Sinderman. He was big in the early uh, novels of the Heresy. He was a remembrancer. Another man named Lemuel Galman. I don't know much of his story. And a sister of silence. So those folks, those humans, would go on to form the branches of the Inquisition, according to this particular story. And those space marines would come together from the Death Guard, from the Luna Wolves, um, and form the Grey Knights. So there's the second story, right? That all of this happened after... The emperor was was uh, you know semi struck down by Horus, where four trusted servants of the emperor gathered in secret to kind of plan what was going to go on next. What now? We've got the emperor on the golden throne doing whatever that means, doing whatever he's doing over there. What's going to happen? Two of them believed that the emperor could be returned to life. They were called the resurrectionists, and the other two thought that was impossible. That fracture. That fracture between the resurrectionists and those who didn't believe that the, that the emperor needed to be left alone and do what he was doing, started to form the two of the three branches of the Inquisition, which is kind of interesting, too. There's a ton there. What I like about the Inquisition is the stories and the characters that it breeds. Anytime you have insane, psychic, skeptical humans, right, in all their flaws and unique personality traits, you're going to have these really great characters, right? You've got... Um, You've got Eisenhorn, Gregor Eisenhorn, who's this, you know, there's a bunch of books out about him that are awesome by Dan Abnett. Um, you've got his protege, uh, Ravenor, another awesome set of books there. It's like this wounded, this physically, in, in, one, of the, in one of the Eisenhorn books, um, Ravenor is physically wounded to the point where he's, he almost dies, right? He's a young, about to become a full Inquisitor. And for the rest of his life, after he's saved in that book, He's like wheelchair bound. You know, he's he's he can't do very much except use his mind and his psychic abilities to help fight off the enemies of the Imperium and help his fellow Inquisitors with his intellect and psychic skills. And then even going farther back into the stories, one of my favorite and strangest books is a trio of books by Ian Watson, uh, The Inquisition War, which is three books about this one particular Inquisitor, Jack Draco, put into one. So Draco is this Inquisitor. He's got an Alpha Legion tattoo on his face for some reason. He falls in love with a uh, with an assassin, a Calidus assassin, who can change her face to look like, a, who can change her body. She's got some chemical in her body, so she can physically change her body to look like a gene stealer. He's got an Imperial Fist space marine that runs around with, around with him, a space marine captain. He's got a squat that runs around with him, who has this, like, ancient pistol. The book is insane. It jumps around in time a lot. It jumps around in location a lot. It's hard to read. It is as twisted and as convoluted a story as the Inquisition itself is. You know, reading these Inquisition books, from Inquisition War to the Eisenhorn books to Atlas Infernal to the Ravenor books, these are... These are like Russian, like like classic Russian literature, right? There's a thousand names in each of these books. It's really hard to keep track of who's fighting who. Lavelle, like you said earlier, there are wars within the Inquisition, within the Inquisition, within the Inquisition that don't know that those wars are going on before they even get to fight the enemies of mankind, right? So each of these books and each of these characters is like this weird onion of 
What? 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 Wasn't he just fighting her? Why is he falling? You know, there's like all these characters fighting. There's all these characters falling in love. They're like, these are deeply human stories, but they're super grimdark and super jacked up. I mean, the Inquisition War, Jack Draco and his retinue of this shape-shifting assassin and this space marine and this squat, they're in the they're in the webway for most of the book series, I'm trying to find the Black Library, and they find that Eldrad Ulthran is in there, you know, this classic... Eldar characters in there running around trying to stop them from getting into the Black Library to get this special book and all this stuff. And it is super convoluted. It is super dark. It is super interesting, I think. So, you know, in the in the codex, I'm sorry, in the index, the Inquisition has its own section, which Yeah, I'm looking yeah, at it it's now. really Inquisitor Karamazov. Is he in any of the books? The guy in the big chair. You know, I have not seen Inquisitor Karamazov. And what's what's cool about him, he's in the chair, Ordo Hereticus, because the Sisters of Battle are the militant wing of the Ordo Hereticus. So Xenos has the Death Watch, Malleus has the Grey Knights, and Hereticus has the Sisters of Battle. And I think Karamazov is usually accompanied by Sisters of Battle models. At least he was in the past. Am I right about that? I believe, yes, because he was in, originally in their codex. Right, right. So let me ask a question, because I feel like if you are playing an imperial army, um, there is so much utility to just adding an an inquisitor in one of your HQ slots. How so? Because the inquisitor, one, he can give you access to an additional psychic power, but he can board your transports. They can, yeah, they, they, they just have so many ways that they can, and they're not that expensive. They're not so that you, expensive. You don't have to have a separate detachment. He can just go right in there. Yes, like, he can. Uh, whatever, death, uh, Dark Angels, uh, Blood Angels, whatever, Ultramarines. Well, well I want to yeah. I want to question the Dark Angel one, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, other than that, they can do it through the authority of the Inquisition. Units with this ability can embark into any Imperium transport, even though the transport in question can normally only permit models with the keyboard faction to do so. All other restrictions apply normally, and Inquisition, Inquisitor Terminator models can only embark upon transport that specifically allow transporter, a, tra- a Terminator to allow. But yeah, you can stick them right in there. You can That's stick them awesome. right in there. And, you know... Depending on what you're going see, here's the other thing that I I don't know. When you build your army, do you have to declare, or can you wait till you get to the table to s- declare which order he's going to be with? You know what I'm saying? That's a good question. So you know, if you have an inquisitor and you've got a generic inquisitor, and now you're playing the Terminator, can you say now, okay, he's the Ordo Xenos? Oh, now I'm across from a chaos. He's the Ordo. Malleus, you know, this is the thing that, you know, I'm not 100% sure about, but I feel like the Inquisition gives you a lot more latitude and as an HQ slot to add in there. And plus, I find them to be pretty, pretty badass. They have a two plus, um, well, in Terminator armor, they have a two plus save, but, you know, they have a three plus save. I I really like the Inquisitors. I really like, I really like their story and I really like the way you can plug in because theoretically, an inquisitor can show up at a captain, uh, uh, um, a um, space marine chapter, and request their services. 
Yeah. And they they can basically they can basically come and do the whole force. They need a pretty darn to do, good to, reason to, their to will. resist them. An inquisitor, and it's only an inquisitor or a chapter master that can order the destruction of a planet. That's right. So from space, an inquisitor can say, uh, "Yeah, we got to go do that. We got to go yeah, do that. Yeah, that planet's got to blow up." Yeah, you know, it's not it's not really worth saving. It, not really don't, worth saving. Don't, right? It's past the point of no return. And don't ask me why. <laughs> yep. Right. Just, just do it. Right. Just hit the red button. The only thing that it's not clear that they could really bully around is the Adeptus Custodes. But I think the the lore behind the Inquisition is really, really interesting. But this is the thing that really is important. The need for the Inquisition. Hey, it's my propaganda coming. The need for the Inquisition, given the fact that they can't really control things from such a distance and the inquisition can actually can can turn a planet without needing an entire army they can simply show up and shoot the governor <laughs> and say any questions <laughs> I, I love the I love the weapons they have. I'm, I'm looking in the I'm looking on page uh, 117. Right, we got a nemesis demon hammer. We have a null rod. A lot of these are things they talk about in the novels too. We got needle pistols. That Jacaro needle pistol is amazing. Um, of course, you got a force save, a stave. You got a sword, an axe. The, the thing that's really interesting is the question, and that the question kind of branches out. The question is two things. One. When did the Inquisition really begin? And how successful have they be, been at kind of clouding all of that? That's the first thing. And the second thing that nobody wants to really ask is where the hell did these Grey Knights come from? Isn't, who, isn't the question really supposed to be, what Grey Knights? <laughs> <laughs> right, there, there, there's this book... Um, I can't remember what it was. Was there was this book where the Grey Knights fought side by side with these? Um, um, I can't remember where I read it. With this Imperial Guard regiment, and they defeated the enemy. But in the end, they had to kill the entire regiment because you know, hey, great job, guys. But listen, you mm -hmm. know too much. Yep, we don't exist. So, but we'll remember you. <laughs> There's a um, there's something in the Grey Knight book where they they have this badge that they wear to remember them. You guys were awesome. You really were. But you know, it's a cool story. I really do. I like the Grey Knights. I like I like Death Watch too. I think the fact that Death Watch brings together a lot of different chapters with a lot of different experience sets and a lot of different knowledge of killing exactly specific kinds of of alien. Uh, threats, you know. I think it's really great how those personalities work together, and that's really the well Death represented Watch through books. RPG, which I have every book on, does a great job delving into them. The two things that I like about the Death Watch is people leave their chapters and they serve for a time in the Death Watch, and then they go back to their chapters and they um, they bring their Xenos fighting abilities, but they never talk about what they did on the Death Watch. Yeah, And then the people who show up at the Death Watch and just say, don't ask me where I came from. I'm just ready to serve here forever. The Black Shields. And so they come from some chapter from somewhere that's been tainted and they say, OK, you know what? I don't want to talk about what my chapter did. I'm just here. 
So, so I think the Inquisition and the way they employ the other forces of the Imperium, like the Sisters of Battle, like the Grey Knights and Death Watch, I think that's really cool. I think it, it's really interesting that the in the in the narrative here in the story we have these humans who are able to enlist the power of superhumans to do what needs to be done to either fight each other or to fight the enemies of the Imperium. I think it's really cool. Um, I'm interested in this notion of putting together an inquisitorial warband to play on the tabletop, you know? Even in the Index, they don't even have their own codex. They may never get their own codex. But even in here, you can put them together with, like, a weaponsmith and, like, this little ape-looking dude and a demon host, you know, which is basically a human that has a demon living in it that the Inquisitor uses for his own bidding. You know, there's all this weird, super dark stuff that you can bring to the tabletop. I'd be interested in doing that and maybe using those models to try the uh, the Inquisition RPG skirmishy game. But let me, let me put this out there. So one of the messages is, in this, in, in the Empire, with all of these superhuman people, the real ultimate authority are the humans. And the Inquisition keeps it that way. Cool. Well, I hope I hope everybody got something out of that uh, future history segment. I like referring to stuff like that as future history because it's a reminder of how much we've forgotten. You know, here we are in 2017, right? We know so little about our own history, and you can imagine 40,000 years from now how little what's left of humanity are going to remember about their own history. So much is forgotten so often. I think that's part of what's cool about all this sci-fi shenanigans. That was episode 9 of Crew Shaken. I really enjoyed recording this episode with you guys. Um, I have to admit, I was in a little bit of a like a painting slump. I'm coming out of this recording session pretty amped up about uh, g- getting into some different ways to play 40k and probably getting some Inquisitors into my, uh, my Iron Hands and Admech armies just for a little bit of extra sauce on top. I think that'd be really dope. I'm really, really enjoying 40k. Now more than ever. And I recommend that everybody make room at the table for new players. They are and returning players. They are enriching everybody's meta and helping the game across the board. All this talk about the Inquisitors has made me want to go back and read up on some of that stuff. And I had the uh, Xenos book by Dan Abnett on the Black Library that I've kind of been... Uh, you know, um, neglecting a little bit. I think after this show, I'm going to go back and listen to it. That was episode nine for Crew Shaken. I've been Tim. I'm Laval. And I'm Carlo. See you next time. Thanks for listening.